Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Good morning and happy tax day. I am Will Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of Think Book Radio and thethinkbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Think42 and at ThinkBook. Be sure to like our Facebook and stay in the loop on all that's going on, which includes the Olympia Sync Summit occurring August 8th and 9th, of which you can find more information at thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out our Indiegogo funding campaign, please. And after last night's symbolic Passover blood moon, we are going to need some help unpacking the meaning. And so on this 15th day of April for episode number one, Three, two. We're going to embody a meditation by entering the labyrinth. And we do that with one of the world's foremost teachers on the subject, the Reverend Dr. Lauren Artris. Good morning, Doug here. Thank you, Doug. You bet. There are few people who epitomize the emergence of the new American culture as much as Dr. Artris. Over the past 20 years, she has been a spiritual pioneer and a leading voice in popularizing the labyrinth in the U.S. and around the world, helping hundreds of thousands of people to experience this ancient spiritual practice. She is a featured presenter in the leading centers for consciousness expansion, such as the Omega Institute, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and the Chautauqua Institute, where she has been a key catalyst of our emerging awareness of mind-body connection, the impact of our thoughts on our lives, and the importance of living with compassion. Dr. Artris is a canon of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco and author of three books on the labyrinth. Her first book, Walking a Sacred Path, Rediscovering the Labyrinth as a Spiritual Practice, was instrumental in launching what is known now as the Labyrinth Movement. Dr. Artris founded a nonprofit named Veriditas, the Worldwide Labyrinth Project, in 1996 to pepper the planet with labyrinths. Her organization works in partnership with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and her office is located on the Earthrise Retreat Center in Petaluma, California. More information about her work and Veriditas can be found at her website, laurenartris.com. Her work has been an inspiration to me, and it is amazing to be speaking with her today. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Did you happen to take in last night's eclipse? Uh, no, I didn't. Not directly. Uh, I was aware of it, but I didn't. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is. <laughs> <laughs> I set an alarm last night, and it registered. But I just, I didn't even, I didn't even lift my head up. My my wife said that it was it was cloudy anyway. But it struck me. I this... feel better then. <laughs> <laughs> it, st- <laughs> it struck me how interesting this natural event speaks with uh, the threefold nature of a labyrinth walk. I think everyone knows what a labyrinth is, but could you sketch its history a little bit and then explain how we've come to use a labyrinth? Okay. Well, let me... I'm usually... uh, I find it important to sketch it in the... or etch it into the listener's mind, though, that let's take a moment and say a labyrinth is usually a large circle, although they can be in other shapes as well. And it's not a maze, so there's no tricks to it, there's no dead ends. And it's one path starts at the outer edge and weaves in a very circuitous way in the center. And so just so the listener has that in their mind. And labyrinths actually, in terms of history, the classical seven-circuit labyrinth is about four to 5,000 years of age. You find it on ceramics from Tel Arif in Syria. Uh, you find it in drawings from Pilos uh, uh, in Greece. Uh, so that has very ancient roots. 
the Chart Labyrinth or the Eleventh Circuit Medieval Labyrinth, which is what I'm, is really kind of my heart song that I I work with uh, almost daily, is um, uh, from the well, it's actually found in a manuscript in the sixth century. And then it was repeated and referred to in the 9th century. And by uh, 12th century, or 1201, actually, the labyrinth was placed in, inlaid in the stone in the floor of Chart Cathedral in France. And how do we use these today? And do you think that's sure, historically um, what they were used for, or do we have any idea? Well, you know, that's a, that's a, the history in, in the sense of the use is a bit sketchy. Although, um, if you look at the Hopi Medicine Wheel, which is, again, the classical seven-circuit labyrinth, and I'm using the word circuit, and that's, that counts how many times the one path goes around the center. Uh, so that would be certainly used as healing or in a medicine wheel. Uh, so that that's sketchy, but that's also uh, very clearly in the Hopi tradition. Um, the officials at Chartres Cathedral do verify that the labyrinth was placed there probably as a way of teaching the illiterate uh, pilgrim and, and uh, people in, in, uh, who related to that cathedral, teaching them a way to uh, experience the journey to God, uh, the journey to the center, as we might say now. Uh, and so when they couldn't read and they couldn't write, that was a, an actual body a prayer, a body experience in terms of walking to the center. Uh, and even in Chart, they called the center the New Jerusalem. That would be out of uh, Revelations 12, 12, uh, the path, the Shemen to Jerusalem, the road to Jerusalem, and then the center being the New Jerusalem. And I guess the reason why I thought of the eclipse in those terms is because the process is, you know, the moon begins eclipsing, and then it's eclipsed, and that feels kind of like the center, the touchstone. And then yeah. after, after you know, some time, then it, it reverses and comes out of the eclipse. Yes, that that's actually a good a good comparison because there are those three stages of usually when you're walking into a labyrinth, there's a sense of releasing, kind of coming home to yourself. The 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 chattering mind quiets as you find your natural bodily pace. Uh, and then you uh, finally arrive at center. For people, some people it feels like really finally. Other people feel like it's a very quick walk. Uh, in the Chart Labyrinth, it's about a third of a mile in. Uh, and then when you're in center, you're right, there's the actual eclipse. <laughs> That's a part of, a, we, we might call it releasing and then re receiving. It's a point of illumination. It's a point of being able to, to come into consciousness in a slightly fuller way, if possible. And then uh, people sit, people stand in the center lab, but they take their time. And then when they're ready, they walk the same path back out. And that's the third phase, uh, indeed, like the moon reclaiming its, its reflective light. Uh, and there's a point of clarity. There's kind of a strange sense of strengthening uh, as people are walking out. It's like you've received something in the center, and then you carry that back out into the world. Hmm. You know, I'm I'm curious about you know the ancient mythologies coming out of like uh, Greece and things of that nature that put the beast in the middle of the labyrinth. Does that have any insight that you can of, of why the what? beast is usually seen at the the middle of the labyrinth? Well, it's interesting, and it's not uh, always usual. And there's actually quite a discussion about whether that was true in Chartres Cathedral, but the center of the labyrinth was a plaque there. It was made out of lead and brass and probably copper, and it was pulled up to be made into cannonballs um, during the French Revolution. So actually no one knows about Chartres. In Exeres Cathedral, they did find a drawing that the Minotaur was supposedly in the center. And the, the ancient Greek myth, this is where legend and myth and and not even history. They they don't touch in history. The legend and myth move back and forth to each other. But the um, the story of the Minotaur is fascinating in itself. Although there's no proof that it was a labyrinth ever on the Isle of Crete. Um, but the Minotaur was more of a symbolic uh, portrayal of the, the shadow, or symbolic perhaps of the devil. And if it were in these great uh, medieval uh, cathedrals, that would be indeed to symbolize that. And of course, if the Minotaur were the shadow, Theseus would be the savior. 
and Ariadne's these thread would be the Holy Spirit, that that which provides guidance. Oh wow! One of the threads throughout your book is this idea of the great grandmother's thread, which plays with that notion of Ariadne's thread. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think that's one of the um, understandings that we're coming to as our new emerging spirituality comes into our awareness. That there's something that, no pun intended, that sort of ties us all together. Uh, <laughs> and of course, that you know, uh, stepping out of our empirical science where everything is random and nothing has meaning and and all of that into a, a universe that we we know that there's some kind of implicit pattern using bones uh, understanding that there's some kind of implicit meaning in the lives we live uh, and that we really have to find some kind of integrative thread and uh, those of us who are lucky find it earlier in our lives and those of us who are lucky also find it later in our lives in terms of through spiritual experience or through a peak experience, as Maslow might uh, have said, uh, that there's something that comes into our consciousness that um, begins to uh, help us find a pattern. And actually, that's what the labyrinth does. Uh, you can say a maze is designed for you to lose your way. A labyrinth is designed for you to find your way. Hmm. And I read that labyrinths often come to people at like transition points in their life. We had yes. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake as a guest uh, to speak about the transition of 2012 and his friend Terence McKenna. Could you talk about mm -hmm. why labyrinths manifest between these worlds and then your thoughts about where our world is currently and that larger transformation that's been going on since the 60s? Sure. Um not that that's easy, but uh, <laughs> we we have, in the labyrinth movement we have a phrase: "Did you find the labyrinth, or did the labyrinth find you?" And, and that's how do you always a good that? question. How do I answer that? I would I would say both, um, because I was looking for something uh, to address the huge and deep uh, pastoral challenges during the AIDS crisis at Grace Cathedral in 1987, 88, 89. And then in late 1990, I came uh, 91. I came across the labyrinth. Um, and for me, I, I'm a visual thinker. I'm a pattern thinker. And for me, the labyrinth made just made sense. Now, I didn't have the words for it then. I didn't know what it was. I was kind of blabbering on and on about the labyrinth, the labyrinth. But when people began to walk it, I, I could easily see that it touched them deeply. And it was a place to grieve. It was a place to express gratitude. Uh, it was a place to be able to be alone together because usually all of, most of my work is done with groups of walking the labyrinth. And so the pattern speaks deeply to people. And I think that's actually why at this day and age, um, and uh, actually labyrinths, if you look back at the different revivals and the different times that labyrinths have come into human consciousness, it's always around chaotic times. Uh, the last revival was in the 1800s as we were moving into the industrial age. Mm. People were leaving their farms. They were leaving rural areas, moving to the cities. There was a lot of chaos as society reorganized itself. Uh, that was also true in the medieval times uh, when the whole uh, of Europe was flowering, the banking systems, the trade systems, the uh, even the numbers, a zero came into the uh, to our uh, awareness. Uh, so huge, huge changes. And I think what we're doing is during times of chaos, the labyrinth offers a center. It offers a stabilized center. And that people begin to kind of seek out that pattern so they can find, literally, find center. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's how it happened for me, where I was... How was that for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was... I was seeking, definitely seeking, and I was reading tons of Joseph Campbell, and I was looking for this mythic underpinning for my life, but I, I didn't feel like I had a ritualistic container to put that in. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. just, it was all words, and there was no way to manifest that in material. And that was that was my chaos, is that I was, in a lot of the spiritualities that I was sifting through, it seemed like there was an emphasis on spirit over matter and I always that always yeah. kind of rubbed me the wrong way 
be- mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, you know what what's the purpose of this life is if we're trying to escape it yes uh-huh and so uh-huh. then um somehow i discovered the labyrinth and it just everything kind of clicked that that so there was this participation of both inner and outer worlds and um some kind of the the normal binary of our our reality disappears in this symbol right well see i think one of the reasons that happens is because this the template and i'm thinking specifically of the chart labyrinth although others other archetypal labyrinths this is true as well but the template goes back before cartesian thinking came in before we split up the mind body spirit or between spirit and matter this is a template that goes back to a world that doesn't accept that split and so therefore when you walk into the labyrinth the the boundaries between mind body and spirit uh, are not there they're in, they become invisible so you can have a heart to heart talk with your body you can have a heart to heart talk with spirit it, see and and that's one of the wonderful things about a labyrinth uh and my work has wound up helping people navigate that that inner world because sometimes you people it's a strange world to people but another interesting point too was the notion of shadow, and so a lot of the mm-hmm. a lot of the spiritualities that I was playing with didn't want to acknowledge the notion of shadow, but it seemed like the labyrinth almost forces that, not in a scary way, but definitely in. So you're held in this structure, but then you're moving into wholeness, I guess. Could you speak right. about I- Christian mysticism and its relationship to shadow and what its aim is? Well, uh, you know, I agree with you that the wholehearted traditional Christianity does not uh, really accept shadow, uh, and especially from God, that God is all light and no shadow whatsoever. And I think, as Carl Jung made the point, that's where I think traditional Christianity is missing the boat. And therefore, shadow is still unconscious. And, uh, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, the most evil is done in the world by good people who do not know they're not good because the shadow is buried and not allowed to come to consciousness. And it, you're right, in the labyrinth, and the beauty of, I loved your phrase, a, a ritual container, because that's what the labyrinth is, you're, the a ritual act of walking and in a way, it's like the peeling of the proverbial onion, you know, layer by layer. And so there is shadow work that's done in, in the labyrinth. People get in touch with the place in their lives where they missed out, where they flew into a rage instead of being loving, or where they did something unconscious and they had no knowledge of it at that time. But these kind of memories pop up when you're in the labyrinth. These kind of realizations uh, come into awareness so our consciousness can integrate them. And that's a real gift of the labyrinth. And yet it's also very gentle. If you come in touch with a shadow, a piece of shadow, it's uh, you're not hit over the head with it. You're able to uh, just take it in very gently. And I think that's partly because of you're moving partly because you're ready, uh, partly because the beautiful design of the labyrinth as it moves around the center uh, allows us literally to to get in touch with deeper layers of ourselves. Okay, I have a theory. You tell me what you think. In the, okay. in the, same, way, in the same way that, you know, Freemasons have this ritual where they take the initiate and create a space where they become a, a Hiram Abiff, where they, where they bury them and, and kill them. It seems to me that the labyrinth in ancient times was used as almost a fairy tale. Like you would tell these kids about the beast in the middle of the labyrinth their whole life. And then when they became of age, it was like an initiation. They were told to go into this labyrinth with the understanding that there was a beast running around ready to kill them as a a sacrifice or whatever. But then they would get to the, they would, they would go through all of these, you know, these, this, this, uh, this working out, while they're while they're we're physically walking the labyrinth and get to the middle to discover that the beast was just a shadow on on a wall or something it was all it was all make believe and all the sounds that they heard creeping around the corners that they thought the minotaur was were just coming from themselves 
Does that make sense? Well, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, that the beast is themselves, and I think you, you you said that. You know, you get to the center looking for the beast, and you realize there you are at the center, you know, to, to claim the beast part of ourselves, for sure. Uh, I think that's possible. We, we don't actually know um, how the labyrinth was used in those very early times, uh, but this, but the the myth of the Minotaur has certainly stayed with uh, some of the labyrinth. I mean, I I don't use that a lot because um, you know it scares people rather than real, helping them realize that they need to look at their own shadow part within their own beast within. Um, but I think that's possible, and you know it'd be a, a fun kind of and thing to do, especially with youth. Uh, that to really use the labyrinth in many different ways. And that's one of the beautiful things about the labyrinth. It is a great ritual container. Uh, and you can use it for ceremony. You can use it for make-believe. You can use it for whatever way uh, that you, that would would help the group you're working with come to greater realization, come to greater consciousness. Well, so that's interesting because, as I said, I read a lot of Joseph Campbell, and he would talk about traditional societies and their rites of passage for young people. And especially for young boys, that was kind of scary because I think part of that was initiation into a larger world that is kind of scary. And so, you know, they had to show them the powers that are and what they serve in, in kind of a, you know, in a cave or darkness to, you know, a shocking realization of the shadow perhaps but in, in oh yeah it would be mean as hell well but, so i'm I thinking mean, of like luke skywalker going into the thing and, and go and finding vader yeah he but finds himself in the place where yoda tells him not to go sure but then Shoot the nerdism we <laughs> mentioned terence mckenna and so it seems like one of the avenues these days for youth to enter that initiatory experience is maybe through through um sacred drug use. I wonder what your thoughts are of that, because there is a similarity there as well, where you go on this journey where you take the thing and you go and you reach the center and then you come back. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Sure, uh, and I'm aware of Terrence McKenna's work uh, and have uh, heard him speak uh, long before he was challenged uh, physically with his health. Um, and, and healing plants. I think we're finding this now that the medicinal, pl- the medicinal plants, healing plants, um, and he would have that, he would do that same threefold understanding. You're, you're moving into the process, uh, you're in the center, and then you're moving out of the process. Uh, but certainly, and, and Terence's theory, you know, early on of why humankind had an enlarged brain uh, that, you know, it was because of psilocybin that people, you know, millennia ago, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, ate mushrooms. And the tiny human brain moved from a tiny human brain to a much enlarged human brain. And that, I know that was one of his major theories. And, and um, you know, something enlarged the human brain. Uh, something uh, gave us uh, greater awareness and opened us uh, to the universe, and and, and that's also uh, the another theory um, is where the labyrinth pattern came from, is that it actually comes from the constellations in the in the sky in the stars. Um, Sig Lonergan in his book um, Ancient Rites and Modern Uses talks about the possibility of the classical labyrinth classical seven circuit labyrinth coming from tracing mercury through the sky in the process of one year. Um, so where do we get these patterns from and, and how did the brain incorporate them? Uh, those are those are fascinating questions. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm curious about the energetic difference between a seven course labyrinth and an eleven course labyrinth. Do you recognize any difference when you're walking those? Um you know, this is a great area that we need research in, uh, but they probably, labyrinths have different uses. In, in my own experience, and this doesn't mean it's, you know, uh, you know, the final word by any means, because it's different. Yeah, it's not definitive because it's different. Labyrinth people experience different labyrinths differently in their own body, hmm. uh, and they also the experience is different when they walk one on Monday and they walk one on Tuesday, even if it's the same labyrinth. See, 
So the, to me, the classical seven circuit labyrinth is uh, a more extroverted labyrinth. It's you're you're integrated, you feel peaceful, and you come out in the world, you know, kind of ready to take on the world uh, or be a part of it. Um, I've actually over in Switzerland, we walked a labyrinth in a in a, a classical labyrinth in a parking lot, and literally we walked out, and they were handing out cider, and there was a big kind of political rally, and it was it just felt natural to go join the world. For me, with the Chart-style labyrinth, the 11th Circuit labyrinth, there's 28 180-degree turns in it. And as you move through the 180-degree turns, of course, you're still always spiraling in a clockwise way into center, although it may not feel that way. It takes you in the different realms. So when you come out of a Chart-style labyrinth, often people's reaction is to go sit down and journal. Uh, or go and be reflective, or if you're in Grace Cathedral, to walk around the cathedral and take on the, in the iconography and just take in the, the peacefulness of the majestic cathedral. Um, see, so people come out in different places, but boy, that would be a great research project. <laughs> really would be. I walked the, the labyrinth at Grace Cathedral in 2012, and it was almost kind of a pilgrimage where uh, we were going to San Francisco, and I said, well, we have to do this. Has that always been there? How, when, did, when did that get there? Well, uh, we started the work in 1991. Uh, we opened it in New Year's Eve uh, for 24 hours. And this is, uh, uh, let's see, and we also, during this event called Singing for Your Life with Bobby McFerrin. And as we opened the labyrinth, uh, that time there was an, a line for six hours. No kidding. It was just amazing. We only had one article announcing it. But we started in Canvas, and then in 1994, we moved into what we call the tapestry, uh, the floor tapestry. We, I commissioned I commissioned a 100% wool rug, uh, and we had that there for 13 years. In 2007, we then put in the limestone and marble labyrinth that you saw last year when you were there walking it, or two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in outdoors, you know, we have a terrazzo, terrazzo stone labyrinth in 1995. And because of uh, water damage and things like that, we replace that with a granite labyrinth that's out there now. So Grace Cathedral has two labyrinths, indoors and outdoors, both the Shard style. And is the one inside a um, twin of the Shard's labyrinth? Uh, it's a little smaller uh, because of the size of the cathedral. It's 34 feet, 6 inches. The one outdoors is 40 feet. And the one in Chart Cathedral, if you count the lunation, the cusps and foils around the outer edge, it's 42 feet across. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, it, and it is. That's, it's a major undertaking. You don't realize it until you're in there. Uh, but then all of a sudden there's a feeling of, uh, wow, this is holy cow. Could you speak a little bit about the sacred geometry of the the Shard's Labyrinth? About I mean, so it's interesting how if you look at it, it looks like it's divided into quadrants, kind of. Well, um, but I would call it a nonlinear labyrinth because as you walk in, you're in, if you want to think about quadrants, if you walk in, you're in the first quadrant, and then you move around, then you go into the second, and then back into the first, and then you go into the third quadrant, and back into the second. And so the path weaves around in a way that so you, the human mind can lose its orientation. Uh, that you don't know where you are. You feel lost. Even though you're not lost, you feel lost because of many twists and turns and moving uh, throughout the labyrinth in a non-sequential way. Uh, the Roman labyrinths were the ones that had, okay, first quadrant, second quadrant, third quadrant, fourth quadrant, center. Uh, and the beauty of the Chart labyrinth is that you uh, lose your way to find your way. Uh, and that's one of the elements, I think, of new brain research coming in, that there's a period of confusion just before we integrate something new. And the Chart Labyrinth certainly captures that. In oh, terms they of use, sacred they use, geom- the, they use the same yeah, tactic to hypnotize people. You throw people off their center, and then it, they, they have to consciously grab hold of like another, another anchor. That's interesting to uh-huh. me. That that makes perfect sense. You 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 disorientate people before you download the new program. 
Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, and uh, it's not a severe disorientation, but it's consistent enough. It's constant, moving through the twenty-eight, one hundred and eighty-degree turns. Um, so, and I think that certainly is by design. Uh, sacred geometry uh, is uh, really uh, based on Pythagorean geometry, not Euclidean, which all you know we learn about in school now and all that. Uh, Pythagorean Pythagorean uh, geometry was not based on zero. There was no zero. There was no. This was the early, early understanding, much more mythical and much more um, probably spiritually oriented. So sacred geometry became the way of designing these uh, great Gothic cathedrals that went up. That everything is in proportion to everything else. And that is what brings the mind to quietness and to peace. There's a kind of feeling of harmony. And the sacred geometry pattern that these labyrinths were were drawn from um, are created in the same way. Everything is in proportion to everything else. Not symmetrical, but in proportion. And, uh, for instance, the width of the path... If you double the path, you get one of the petals in the center. And and everything, you know, the, the lunations on the outer edge, the cusps and foils are half of the path. So everything uh, is in proportion to itself, and that's the key to sacred geometry. And how many lunations, what is a lunation, and how many of them are there around the labyrinth? Sure. Um, in the Chart Labyrinth, now we're talking the uniqueness of the Chart Labyrinth. There are other 11 circuit labyrinths, and sometimes just because cost and uh, and you know hard labor, they're hard to get in. Uh, some labyrinths don't have them, but then technically they're not Chart style. Uh, the lunations are the cusps and foils around the outer edge. Some people call them teeth, and that's because in French. They call them dents, D-E-N-T-S, which means teeth. Uh, but they're cusps and foils. There's 28 per quadrant. Here we are back to the word quadrant again. Mm-hmm. And what they, what they are uh, is they track the lunar cycle, the 28-day cycle. And the theory from a man named David uh, Gottlier uh, from a wonderful article uh, early on called The Maps of the Eternal, which is about Gothic cathedrals, um, it says that his theory was that this they were used as a counting tool to determine the movable feast of Easter. And, uh, don't forget Easter and Eastoir in the early uh, traditions, in the early religions. Um, Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon of the vernal equinox. And so that's a movable feast. And it was an avocation in the Middle Ages to hunt down and figure out the, the date of Easter. Um, nowadays, we can just look up in the back of our prayer books, but then it's possible that you could count off uh, one month, two months, three months, and three times around the whole labyrinth and would bring you to uh, counting the date of the in the next year. Hmm. Uh, and so that's why they're, they're unique to the Chart Labyrinth. They're unique to that labyrinth in Chart Cathedral. The, the number 13 is also encoded into that one. Is that correct? Yes, it's interesting. Um, there's sort of a discussion about this in, in the labyrinth world uh, that uh, Keith Critchlow actually uh, uh, launched that idea that there's a kind of an invisible number of 13. And, and in sacred geometry, there is indeed a, a, a map with 13 points on it that invisibly underlay the chart labyrinth. Um, I gravitate to that to that a lot. Other people sort of disagree with me, but I, I gravitate toward that because 13 is a is a sacred number. Any number only divisible by itself, a prime number, uh, uh, you know, one, three, seven, uh, eleven, thirteen, seventeen. Those are the sacred numbers, and. Um, so 13, the 13-pointed star is something that just really piqued my interest because there was a time where the number 13 was in, in the Julian calendar, the early calendar. And then when we moved to the Gregorian calendar, uh, we became on a 12-month basis. Mm. And the 13 months uh, was dissolved. But I believe the way you 
teach a culture to change is make 13 bad. You know, certainly make that month, you know, which was the spider, the symbol of the spider, uh, you know, negative. And 13 becomes magical and it gets associated with black cats and death and all of that. Right. Wait, wait, do you uh, say 13 was associated with the spider? Yes. Yeah. Wow, I've never heard that before. I'll have to look into that. That's interesting. Yeah, oh. I'd be interested in, in what you come up with because I was in... Um, uh, at the tour, you know, in England, uh, Glastonbury tour, and there was some guy there, and we were talking, and that's what he said. And the the little research that I've done around that has come up and confirmed that. But I would really be interested in, in if you find other sources around that as well. Well, we like I well, like we said right before we came on here, we do a lot of work with uh, modern pop culture. Um, and there, it's interesting mm-hmm. to see certain areas where the labyrinth comes up. I mean, of course, there's the David Bowie labyrinth that was actually called Labyrinth. Yes. But also, in more modern times, there's the movie like Inception, where one of the characters were actually called Ariadne, and um, of yes. course, mm-hmm. all the movie posters. Do you do you see this? Is there anything that um, that has come up lately in your experience with, uh, you know, modern movies or anything where you're like, I know what they're talking about, where it's kind of, you know, covert and, 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 but the symbols are there. Yes. Uh, once you become aware of a labyrinth, you begin to see it almost everywhere. Um, and you, and you also, if it's not a labyrinth, you still stop and count the, count it and look at it really closely to determine whether it's not. Um, one movie, not real recently, but fearless, uh, I don't know if you remember that, where he's in the plane Jeff crash. Bridges. He, yeah. He, yeah. Jeff yeah, Bridges. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go one ahead, of the ahead. drawings, one of the drawings, when he's piecing it all together and kind of coming out of his fearless state, one of the drawings, very quickly, for about one second, is flashed. It's a labyrinth. It, it's flashed in the in the uh, on the papers that he's moving, going through, uh, to help heal himself. Uh, so that's one place I didn't hear your name. Um, Oh, that one slipped by me, too. I actually studied Jeff Bridges and came up with all of this. Uh, I mean, because, it, like, we were talking about the Minotaur. I'm I'm sorry, I have to interrupt because I'm really excited okay. right now. Because uh, he is the gentleman for the 1970s uh, King Kong. And it, it, the King Kong history, They when they were filming it, they usually always called him the Beast. And he had, mm-hmm. it, like, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges, I won't go into too much detail, but he always has this Beast theme. Uh uh, that yes. just, that uh-huh. just super excites me. That super excites me because that goes with everything that I was talking about. Give me another one. Give me another well, one. That was fun. <laughs> well, uh, Jeff Bridges, by the way, knows the labyrinth. He's uh, experienced the labyrinth uh, through our work. And he's also, uh, he loves the classical Seventh Circuit labyrinth. And he, he even presented it on Martha Stewart, one of her daytime TV programs. Um, so it may be in the archives somewhere there, uh, Ooh, for sure. you giving me some homework. <laughs> Okay, good, good. I'd be <laughs> delighted if you can locate that. Also, Sting knows the Labyrinth very well, and his uh, album, Stories from the Labyrinth, although that's not Labyrinth walking music, uh, but it's really his own seeking and his Labyrinth walk. But, uh, but he was well aware of it and came to some of our workshops when he was in a place of mourning. Um, so people are aware of it. And uh, in terms of pop culture, I'm... Um, hesitating because nothing directly comes to mind except that in Fearless. But I have seen it in other places like, aha, aha, oh yeah. There was another movie where it was on the, there was a couch and there was a, a like a, a throw on the couch and the throw was a labyrinth, uh, had the, the labyrinth design on it. So if you really tune into it, it's, it's bubbling up in people's consciousness. There's, besides the about 154 books that have come out, since my book in 1995, and then again reprinted in 2006, um, uh, th- th- there's many, many other references to labyrinths, and people are using the labyrinth as a book cover, for instance, uh, that have nothing to do with the labyrinth, but just as a way of attracting people to their book. Um, it sounds kind of like we're on a bit of a grail quest now. What, what do you think the relationship the labyrinth has to the Holy Grail, or is there a... Uh, uh, well, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because 
I mean, I'm, I love the Grail stories, especially the Parsifal section of it and the Grail castle and all. And I would describe, um, just so I, I don't not understood, I, I misunderstood, the labyrinth is a form of the Grail. It's not the Grail. It's a form of the Grail. Oh, that's um, and, and there's yeah. a wonderful. There's a wonderful book by uh, Linda Sussman, S-U-S-S-M-A-N, called The Speech of the Grail. And she takes the whole Parsifal series of stories and weaves that together. And she defines a grail with three, three ways, uh, three different levels. Uh, let me see if I can draw that. A, gra- a grail or the labyrinth meets you where you are. Number two, it gives you what you no- need. And number three... Uh, it forms an invisible web of relationships between individual destiny and service to the planet. Now, I'm doing this without notes, but I think that's very accurate. It informs an invisible web of relationship between individual destiny and service to the planet. And there again is the, the inner and outer connection. Somehow the... That's right. Well, and that's one of the interesting things you mentioned in your book, how so much of our societies is so exterior and that we're doing work that doesn't enliven our souls. That's right. That's right. And only when the inner world connects with the outer world, that in that moment, that's when meaning is produced. Other thing, otherwise, things don't make sense. Like you're talking about the great grandmother's thread and you're finding your mythical underpinnings, which is a wonderful phrase. Um, you know, that connection, that the inner needs to speak to the outer directly. And we're in such a world that is, um, obscures that connection. It's, it, it's paradoxical. It both seeks it and obscures it at the same time, whether it's our advertising, hoping to kind of snag us in, or a movie that's really going for the gut of existence and may make it or may not make it. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Reverend Dr. Lauren Artris on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about Veriditas and the work of Dr. Artris can be found at laurenartris.com. And be sure and check out. It's, it looks like she has a number of events coming up this summer, in, including uh, things at, at Shards. Am I correct? That's it's, right. Mm-hmm. That's well, right. We're there next month. Join us. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> for, for more information about the Think Book, our guest, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and no one can blame you for walking away, but down in the underground you'll find something true.
A spell to be cast for it to be broken At the very last Some wild ghost from my past Comes to split me wide open Oh, if I bandage my eyes Will you press in my hand A small simple token I was born there first You never spoken Begin hearing these voices in the dark tone And they come to me now Though I dismember my phone They say you wanna hear something That you already know If it comes from above Well this one comes from below It says you're all sleeping together But you will die alone As a child I aspired to be a superhero Now I lay the corpses of the lives I let go Oh I know, you all know, how these things start to show I've been trying to make myself better So I can fare the fair foul weather I write a song like a prison letter I write a song maybe to make me feel better It won't break free my fetters I'm 